All right, so we've been taking a break from our walk through the book of Luke to focus on the church as a family. So go ahead and open up your Bibles today. We're going to take a look at 1 Thessalonians, end of chapter 2, beginning of chapter 3. If you've got one of our Bibles, it's on page 1090. Uh, If you don't own a Bible or if you have an old Bible and you need a new one, these Bibles are for you. This is a gift, our gift to you. Please take one home We'd love for you to have one to read one. But we're going to be uh, chapter 2, starting in verse 17, is where we're going to be picking up here in a minute. Uh, Before we get there, I want to share just a story from the early church. We've been looking at the the early church and looking at the characteristics and the the love that they had for one another and really the core values of the early church. And around AD 260, there was a devastating plague that struck the great city of Alexandria. People were, were dying left and right. The, the death rate was astronomical. And while the church suffered, what was remarkable was the church's response in the midst of this plague. In fact, there was a, a letter written by a pastor in Alexandria, and he said this. He said, The most at all events of our brethren and their exceeding love and affection for the brotherhood were unsparing of themselves and clave to one another, visiting the sick without a thought as danger, assiduously ministering to them, tending them in Christ, and so most gladly departed this life along with them, being infected with the disease from others, drawing upon themselves the sickness from their neighbors and willingly taking over their pains. In this manner, the best at any rate of our brethren departed this life, certain presbytery, deacons, and some laity, So to the bodies of the saints, they would take up into their open arms to their bosom, closing their eyes and shutting their mouths, carrying them on their shoulders and laying them out. They would cling to them, embrace them, bathe and adore them with their burial clothes. And after a little while, receive the same services themselves. For those who were left behind were ever following those that went before. But the conduct of the heathen was the exact opposite, even Those who were in the first stages of the disease, they were thrust away and fled from their dearest. They would even cast them in the roads half dead and treat the unburied corpses as vile refuse. So evidently this plague that was taking over, the the Christians, the church family, they cared for one another no matter what the cost, even though they knew that taking care of those that were struck by this plague would ultimately cause their own death. They, they ran not from the disease, they ran towards the disease. And this is just one of many stories that I could share from the early church. Uh, many historians, they, they marvel at how the early church in those first few centuries didn't just survive but thrived in impossible situations, impossible odds. In fact, that that plague was a small issue compared to the persecution that they were facing from the, the Jews and the pagans and even their own biological families. The early church was able to thrive first and foremost because they had the Spirit of God in them and the combination of the Spirit of God and the the message of God, the gospel that they were passionately proclaiming made the church grow like wildfire. But what I want to point out also is that that I want you to understand the early church grew not just because of their message, but also because of the radical love that they had for one another. 
And people notice. And Jesus predicted this. He said to his disciples, they're going to know you, they're going to know that you're my disciples by the love you have for one another. You see, the Spirit of God, when you trust in Christ, and you receive the Spirit of God, and and the Spirit of God indwells you, he doesn't just open your heart to see the significance of the gospel and show you that you need a personal Savior. The Spirit of God, when you trust in Christ, produces fruit, specifically the fruit of of love. 1 John 3.14, the the Apostle John makes it crystal clear that love for one another is the primary mark of a believer. 1 John 3.14, we know that we have passed out of death into life. Why? Because we love the brothers. He goes on to say, whoever does not love abides in death. And so, how do you know that you're saved? John would say, ask this question, do you love your brothers and sisters in Christ? And so this is where we've been. We've been walking through this series on the church as a family, and we've looked at the ancient world's view of family, and that's one of the primary differences between our culture and their culture, right? They looked at family way differently than we look at family. In our highly individualistic culture, uh, we, we make decisions based on what's best for me. They made decisions on what was best for their, their family. They, they identified themselves not by what they did, but by who they belonged to. And our hopes as we've been studying this is that God would help us to let go of our radically individualistic culture and embrace what Jesus meant the church to be, which is our true family. And so we've looked at how, a, how the ancient church, one of their core values was that they, they shared their spiritual gifts with one another, that uh, as believers, God gives us spiritual gifts. Why? To, to build one another up. And so a healthy church is where every member is seeking to l- use their God-given gifts to, to build up the faith of other people in the church. Uh, a couple weeks ago, we looked at how the early church shared their material possessions with one another, that they had everything in common, that nobody had any kind of need, and so they cared deeply for each other's spiritual and physical needs. Now today we're going to take a look at another core value of the early church. And if you're taking notes, uh, you can write this down. The early church shared their hearts with one another. In Acts chapter 4 we read, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart, and soul. And so today I want to take a deeper look at what, what does that mean. I think the best example that we have in the New Testament is the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul's love for the church is unmatched. And so in 1 Thessalonians, you're going to see Paul writing to a church. He obviously, he cares deeply for them. In fact, if you look back at chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, this kind of sets the tone of what we're going to be looking at today, he writes, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. Now, Paul had visited this church on a second missionary journey, and he was forced out of town by the Jews that were persecuting him. And as we read, starting in verse 17 of chapter 2, I want you to feel 
the depth of the love that he has towards them. Let's pray one more time that God would help us to understand this passage. Father, I recognize that no preparation for this sermon can truly enlighten the eyes of our hearts to know what you want us to know in this passage, to see the significance of it. I pray that we would, we would see and we would feel Paul's heart for this church and that that would move our hearts to love like Paul loves as he loves as a reflection of the love that he felt from you. So open up our eyes and our hearts to see your glory in this passage. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, starting in verse 17, feel the love that Paul has for them. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown or boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. So for this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you for this reason, brothers. In all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now, we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. What a powerful passage. And I, and, and I want to pull out really four characteristics of Paul's love for the church that we see in this passage. This is what it means to be of one heart. And so again, if you're taking notes, number one, the first characteristic of his love is his affection. Often, as men especially, I mean, we don't get passionate about anything unless it's sports. But you can feel Paul's 
passion and his affection towards this church. Look back at verse 17. But since we were torn away from you, literally the word is orphaned. Since we were orphaned from you, he uses this language that makes you picture a child being pulled away from their parents. One of the most memorable moments in foster care, my wife and I, have, we've been doing foster care for a long time now, and one of the most memorable moments of, of that time, maybe the most memorable moment, one of the most memorable moments of my life is when the state brought over two children into our house that had just been through a, a police raid. They had been forcibly removed from their parents. And they came to our house with almost nothing except for what a few, a few items that they were able to grab and the social worker was able to grab on the way out of the house. And I remember looking into their eyes and seeing an utter fear and anger and sadness like I had never seen before. And that's the type of language, that's, that's how strong this language is. That's how Paul felt as he was forced out of town because of the persecution. It tore him to pieces. And notice how he calls them brothers. Often we, we, we just kind of glance over that word and we don't think a whole lot about that word. But back in their culture, as he was calling them brothers and, and sisters, remember in their culture that was huge because the relationship that you had between your brothers, between your, bro your blood siblings was more significant than, you, than a husband and a wife. And also notice that he hadn't even been gone for that long. He points out that we, we've only been gone, we've been torn away for a short time, literally an hour's time. And I, I don't know how long that has been. I don't think it's been years. I think it's probably been months. But for Paul, even a short time away from his family was significant. It, it hurt. It was too long. Paul emphasizes that while he is physically separated, his heart is still with them. He's, he greatly desires to see them face to face again. He says, we, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. And that sounds kind of weird because there's no easy translation into English with that Greek phrase. But what Paul is doing here, he's using every word that he can come up with to the strongest possible language to emphasize his desire to be with them face to face. The NIV translate it, we made it every effort to be with you. Unfortunately, he says, after numerous attempts, he was not able to get back to them because notice how, what, what his reason is. It says, because Satan has hindered him. And the text doesn't say what specifically Satan had done. Maybe it was the threat of more persecution or maybe it was an illness. Really, the specifics aren't important. But what I want to point out is that Paul recognizes that there's a spiritual battle waging underneath the physical reality that separates us. That is almost always true. The vast majority of church family members that are absent, it's because they're hurting. They're suffering in some way, shape, or form. And almost always, Satan is behind that is at the core of that. Sometimes they're absent because life is just simply overwhelming. They don't feel like they've got the time to spend with their, 
their church family. I mean, Satan loves to busy our lives up with, a lot of times it's good things, but we get so busy, especially in our culture, that we, we forsake, we, we gravitate towards good things, but we forsake the best things. Or maybe it, they're absent because they've just had a long week and the thought of being around people is just overwhelming for them. I think Satan loves to foster a, a fear of man in us where we become overly concerned with what other people might think of us. Or, or maybe they're absent because of some kind of relational rift or some kind of personal sin, or maybe they're just being lazy. They would rather sleep in than spend time with their, their church family worshiping God. And, and, and I think Satan loves when we buy into the lie that spending time with our church family worshiping God just is not necessary or it's not valuable, it's not that important. We can find satisfaction and joy in other areas in our world. Satan loves that. And so here Paul recognizes that there's a spiritual war going on. When you're tempted to, to stay home, there's a spiritual war that is going on there that you need to recognize because Satan hates when the church gathers together for the purpose of worshiping God and building one another up in the faith. And he will do whatever it takes to keep you from that, to prevent that. And so to combat Satan's schemes, we need to be in prayer that God would increase our affections towards one another. That's the cure. I've been praying this week for my own heart and for, for our church family that our affections would be like Paul's here. Look at verse 19 and 20. I love this. For what is our hope or our joy or our crown of boasting before the Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and our joy. He looked at the church and said, this is, this is where I find my greatest joy, my greatest happiness. I know I'm preaching to the choir right now. But this is, this is where God fills us. This is where we're filled up and fueled to live in a world that is broken. And Paul shared the same heart for other churches too. Philippians 1.8, For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Philippians 4.1, Therefore, my brethren, whom I love and I long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Ephesians 1.15 and 16, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And ultimately, Paul's affection for the church is simply a reflection of Christ's affection for us. Jesus looks at his church and he says, that's my bride. He calls his disciples, his friends, and his true family was willing to, to die for the church in order to spend eternity with her. He's promised to never leave us or forsake us. He's promised to return for us. In Ephesians 5, he says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. I mean, think of it. He... 
the creator of the universe leaves the glory of heaven to be born in a stinky feeding trough, live a life of poverty, was scorned, was, was tortured, was crucified on a cross. Why? Because he loves you and he wants to give the greatest gift in the universe to you, which is himself, that we would glorify him for all of eternity by being with him and enjoy him. So let's pray that God would increase our affections for one another as we seek to imitate Christ's love for us. Which leads me to to the second point here as we look at Paul's love for the church. Paul's affection did not stop with mere warm feelings towards the church. It led to action. Number two is action. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, a brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ. And so Paul loved them so much that he was willing to send out his best to go check on their faith. It's not like they had cell phones back then, that they could send a quick text. It's not like he could jump on a bus It was 300 miles away. He couldn't be there in just a, a few hours. This is a long trek. Both Timothy and Paul had to sacrifice greatly to go and check to make sure that this church was healthy. But that's what true love does. True love is not simply a feeling. True love always moves us to act. This is why Jesus is able to say to his disciples in John 13, verse 34, a new commandment is I give you, that you love one another just as I loved you, you also are to love one another. And then he says this, and so key, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And so love cannot just simply be a feeling. You can't see feelings. And so love has to be an action. Jesus is saying, look, love one another in a way that the world can see it. Praise God, Jesus didn't just have warm feelings towards us. That he was willing to die to pay the penalty that we deserve because of our sin. There's no greater love than this. As I think about other religions, we've been going through an apologetics class and our cross-training, and, and uh, I think it was last week, Perry taught on the, the other religions. And as I think about the other religions, I, I just think, I mean, wh- what can beat the gospel? What other religion has a God who is willing to come and to, to give his life to pay the penalty that we deserve? There, there, nothing beats the gospel. Nothing. And so the aim of us proclaiming the gospel and gathering together is to glorify God by producing a radical and sacrificial love that reflects the love of Christ towards us. John says, this. He says, we love because God first loved us. And I want you to get this more than anything maybe this morning. Love for others that is not rooted in Christ's love for us, it will not last. You might call it infatuation. I mean, you might have some warm feelings towards somebody, somebody else that is not connected and not rooted in Christ's love. But ultimately, that kind of love, love for others that is not anchored in Christ's love for us will become distorted and it will become diseased. Love for others that does not find its origin in the love of Christ is not biblical love. It's not true love. It's, it's not a love that honors God. Because think about this. If you're trying to love someone else apart 
from it being anchored in God's love for us, what's motivating you to love them? Is it not ultimately a self-love? It's a love, you're loving them because you want them to love you back. But that's not the love that we see here from Paul. If our if the root of our love, if the anchor of our love, if the source of our love is God's love towards us, then our aim is always to love others with the purpose of pointing them back to the source of our love. We don't love others to get them to love us back. We love others so that they would fall deeply in love with Christ, not us. And that's the type of love that Paul has for the church. Notice that His love is directed specifically towards their faith. He cares most deeply for their souls. Which brings us to point number three. As we're looking at Paul's love, it was all about soul care. Number three is soul care. Look back at chapter three, verse two. They sent Timothy to establish and exhort them in the faith. Again, down in verse 6, Timothy brought good news back to Paul about their faith. Verse 7, in the midst of the distress that they were experiencing, Paul was comforted because of their faith. And then in verse 8, I love this, Paul says, now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. In other words, Paul is saying, look, knowing that you are standing fast, knowing that your faith is remaining in Christ in the midst of tribulation, that enlivens my heart. I live for that kind of thing, watching you have faith in the midst of cancer. Watching you have faith in the midst of of moving to Michigan. Watching you have faith while your daughter is away for five weeks at GSP. I love when I see our church family in the midst of trials trusting God. Paul was focused on soul care. That was his primary concern. And the primary concern that we should have for one another is for one another's souls. We should be regularly asking each other questions that probe our souls. We should be regularly asking one another, what's God been teaching you? How's your time in God's word been? lately. How can I pray for you? I would encourage you. Donald Whitney has a great book. It's, it's uh, 10 Questions to Diagnose Your Spiritual Health. That would be a great book for you to walk through with your, your one-to-one, your accountability partner. Uh, in September, I'm really looking forward to this. We're going to have a, a sermon series on soul care. And we're actually going to, in our missional communities, and in our, in our cross-training, we're going to have some lessons focused on soul care because I want us to be a church that is well-equipped to help one another through the biggest trials of our lives. And I want us to be a church that can, as we're reaching out, uh, Mark 12 ministries, and you're, you're going to hear a lot more about that next week, as we're reaching out into the community, I want us to be a church that can truly help people's souls. We're not just ministering to their physical needs, but we're, we're ministering, ministering to their spirit. And so let's, let's dig into that. And the good news is that the gospel is, Christ cares for our souls and he has given us many, many tools to help your soul and to help others' souls. 
And so let's be well-equipped to be able to, to care for one another's souls well. All right, number four. As I look at Paul's love, it's, it, it's really all about perseverance. Uh, Paul has been through a lot, and he's writing this letter to encourage them to, to persevere in their faith. He recognizes the, the challenges of standing firm in the midst of trials. Trials are a constant threat to our faith and to our unity as a church. And often our natural response to those trials and the, the, the conflict that we experience is to run away. But we ought not be surprised when we experience trials. That's what Paul is saying in this text. We ought not be surprised when we experience conflict within the church, when you've got a bunch of sinners that come together and try to be family. And so in the midst of that, Paul challenges us to persevere, have a love that that is so strong that it perseveres through the trials and the conflict. As a pastor, I've had the blessing of being on the front lines of seeing people at their best days and their worst days. I get to see them at the wedding. I get to see them at the funerals and the hospitals. And so I've had firsthand experience over the years of seeing how people respond to trials. And I will say, over and over, I have observed those who persevere always grow. They always grow. Those who persevere through relational conflict, whether it's in their marriage or within the church, and they seek to reconcile rather than to run, always grow. Those who persevere through difficulties and doubts, and they seek out help rather than try to hide, they always grow through the pain. The growth of your faith will always be limited by your willingness to persevere through the pain. And so this is my hope as we continue through this series over the next couple weeks, that we would continue to strive to develop a deeper love for one another, that we would be of one heart and of one soul, that we would be reminded that love in the Bible is not just a warm feeling, but it's, it's, it's work, it takes effort, we need to grow in it, and my hope is that God would lead us to make some radical sacrifices for one another. And maybe for you that means that you give up some good things to be able to be more committed to your church family, your, your missional community. And those are difficult decisions because sometimes you, you have to sacrifice good things that you're doing for your kids even because you recognize there's a better thing that they need to be involved in. They need to see you being involved in. Maybe for you that means you take the risk of asking a guys, another guy to, to keep you accountable, that you want a deeper relationship with, with them. Maybe for you this means that you just start becoming more vulnerable in your time when we have prayer requests at missional communities. Maybe for you this morning it means confessing a struggle that you've been having and you need to talk to somebody. I would encourage you to come talk to me, talk to somebody you trust. I want to pray that God would, would help us as a church 
continue to grow in our love for one another. Being a part of Mercy Hill, I, I, can, I can say that this church family has loved us, and I've said this many times. I mean, I've never experienced a church family that loves like this one does. But you know what? I think we've barely scratched the surface. God's love is limitless. And so this is something that we need to continue to work on. Well, uh, a couple of months ago, we had the marriage conference, and Paul Tripp talked about in a marriage, you have to pull weeds and plant seeds. You cut, and if you, what happens? If you stop pulling weeds, what happens? They just come back. That is so true in the church family. We need to constantly, in our own hearts, pull weeds and plant seeds of love. And so let's pray that God would help us to do that. Father, we recognize that loving one another as Paul describes, or as we've seen Paul's love described in this passage, it doesn't come naturally to us. And I pray that you would help us to set aside selfishness and laziness and pride and fear of man. And we would embrace one another. We would increase the capacity of our hearts to love the treasure of what you have given us in the church family, that we would recognize that we need one another. We need to encourage one another. We need to grow in our affections towards one another. And I pray that that affections would move us to action and sacrifice and perseverance for your glory, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're going to move into a time of communion. We do this every single time we gather on a Sunday morning. Uh, this is uh, a gift that Jesus has given us to be reminded of the sacrifice that he has given us. And so at the last dinner with, with his disciples, he repurposed the, the Passover feast is what he did. And he took the the wine and he said this is my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of sins take this in remembrance of me and he took the bread and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and he said take this in remembrance of me and so we've got three stations two in the front and one in the back if you're if you've trusted in Christ and you know him as your savior and your lord we would encourage you to to celebrate with us and what you'll do is you'll Go to one of those stations, you'll take the bread, you'll dip it into the juice, and you'll go back to your seat. And I want you to spend some time alone with God, just asking him, okay, what's the next step? In light of what we've heard in your word, what do I need to do in light of that? What conversation do I need to have? What steps do I need to take? What weeds do I need to pull? What seeds do I need to plant? And so spend some time alone with God. And then after everybody has gone through the line, we're going to stand, we're going to worship together because he is worthy of our worship because of what he's done for us on the cross. Uh, this is also a time for giving. If you're a visitor, don't feel obligated. But these boxes are for the mission to continue to move forward. So I encourage you to give uh, joyfully and, sat and uh, sacrificially to the Lord's mission. You come as God is calling you to respond. I will be in the back. If you need prayer, you need to... Just talk, 
Uh, if you've got questions about salvation or baptism or church membership, please don't leave here today until you get those questions answered. I would love to stay behind and talk to you. You come as God is calling you to respond.